salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven Jewel, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Craig Northey of Vancouver, British Columbia's Odds. So, uh, Odds were formed in 87, and yeah. uh, your first kind of major release wasn't until 91. Can you maybe kind of describe what those in between four years were like? I mean, was a lot of DIY efforts? Was a lot of playing gigs for no money? Was it? Uh... Yeah, it was a convoluted time. So we we were like any other band. We started in a basement and uh, had picked each other from other bands that we liked over time. Said, "I wish I one day I'd like to be in a band with that guy." <laughs> and uh, we were all the kind of just the oddballs of the other bands we were in. And then um, we decided because we couldn't play original gigs all the time in Vancouver, the scene kind of went up and down. Sometimes there were a lot of gigs for people making their own music, and sometimes there were none. So um, Stephen Drake had, during Expo 86, which was a thing that happened here, I'm sure everyone's aware of what an Expo is, and that was a, a time when everybody people could get gigs somehow related to Expo 86. And uh, he had invented a band called the Dawn Patrol, which was a, a British invasion band in wigs and glasses, kind of looked like um, the way outs from the Flintstones. <laughs> and they, they had a menu on the table with the numbered menu of the songs, and the crowd would just scream out a number, and that was the next song that they played. Oh, wow. And, uh, they did that as a house gig and a guy at a club on Granville Street, which was at the time a shady, crime-filled uh, corridor of strip clubs, etc. cetera. Uh, there was a, a club that had been around forever that had kept changing names and changing hands. And when we got a gig there as the odds, um, one day he came up to us in uh, late 87 and said, uh, I'm going to change the name of this place. I want to do a kind of a party place. Do you think you guys could reboot the Dawn Patrol? Because I saw it during Expo 86 and do that. And of course, one of us thought, sure, that was Stephen because he knew how to do it. And the rest of us kind of went, screw that. We don't play, <laughs> we don't play other people's music, <laughs> especially me. I was the biggest holdout. And then he said, no, no, it would make you confident. You'd be on stage every night. You'd have all this quiver of songs that you'd, you'd have to learn that could kind of teach you a lot about how songs are put together, etc. So I gave in and we put it together in a, in a week and started doing that in disguise as another band on the, on, at a place called the Roxy on Granville Street. And at first it was just, you know, like the criminal underworld and, uh, couple explore explore uh, a, a couple college kids on an exploratory mission down into the underbelly of Vancouver and those college kids started spreading the word that there was these guys in this club that were out of their minds and so <laughs> we we would just make fun of the audience and we would change all the words to the songs and we would make fun of ourselves of course and there was nudity and it was it was kind of stuff that, <laughs> stuff that couldn't happen nowadays. I don't I don't I don't think it could. So more more of the college kids and all alternative types, as they used to call it, would show up 
and soon it was a thing, you know, soon it was a place to go and people lined up to get in, which is really weird. And not, not only did that sort of give us a chance to keep bargaining with the club to pay us more money, but uh, we took the money and every day we would wake up and we would record in the basement. They gave us a place to play and we would work on our own stuff. And every Thursday we would open for ourselves as ourselves. <laughs> and uh, we started using the money from that gig to take those recordings and go to Los Angeles. And we we had a, a house gig in a couple places down there. And that's how eventually we got noticed by our soon-to-be manager, got noticed by the music business because Canada kind of wasn't interested in us at the time and trying to make the story shorter. But that's sort of how it happened. Those were those years and it was no sleep and a constant uh, sense of adventure and, uh, you know, constantly writing music and and doing this thing. You know, we just never slept. We we took all the money that we made and put it back into what we were doing. Now, was the uh, the Dawn Patrol the reason you guys got the uh, call to be on Booker? Yes. Yeah, the, the 21 Jump Street people would come and hang out there. You know, Johnny, Johnny Depp and Richard Grieco and all those people would come and hang out in the bar. And we would got, got to know them, and they'd get up on stage with us. And really? Sports personalities and whomever. There was a lot of people sitting in with the Dawn Patrol. So the Richard or somebody from the – Canal Productions realized we could we could pull off something like this Who tribute band. And do you remember anything from uh, the shoot at all? Oh yeah, yeah. We we were just excited to be able to smash some things. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if anyone. It's a you can see it on YouTube, I'm sure. But it's it was a plot where <laughs> this Who tribute band ends up with BB King's Lucille, which was stolen, and the whole episode was about. B.B. King's guitar being stolen. He wasn't actually in the episode. He was just a voice behind a door. And Tawny Katane, she was in it too. I just remember that the, the director was constantly cheating everything and everything was moving pretty quickly. And Paul got to smash the drums and I smashed a microphone. And the pre-record was fun where we did Behind Blue Eyes and My Generation. And we, we have, you know, complete recordings of those where we were trying faithfully to reproduce them so that was fun to do so 91 you guys said you guys canada wasn't interested in you so you went to la to find to find your way um after signing with an american label did you guys spend all your time touring in america to try to promote the record or yeah sort of i mean in, in a nutshell they couldn't give two shits about canada really <laughs> but <laughs> but eventually we would do gigs in in canada and at that point, I think people in Canada thought we were from Australia or something. <laughs> but it, it eventually worked out. You know what? By the time our second record came out, uh, the word uh, people got into it, I guess. And those those records were more successful on the radio by a bit. And uh, we when we crossed the border, it was a little more exciting. There was there was moshing. Yeah. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> Now, before we get uh, deep into the records, can you talk a bit about uh, how you guys became Warren Zevon's backing band? He'd done that type of thing before where he'd taken a band that he liked out as his band, and uh, that band also opened the show. He he did a record in the 
70s called Stand in the Fire with a, a band called Boulder. And then he also had done a thing called the Hindu Love Gods with R.E.M. And uh, so he we shared the same agent, um, Steve Ferguson. And I guess he called Steve and said, what's cool? Like, what's what's out right now? What do you, what do you know about that? guys who could who could pull this off who could play the music and understand me that sort of thing and he said well i think this here's a stack of records and warren listened to them and said what about these guys he said okay well we were on tour at the time with a band called voice of the beehive and um we got the call saying do you want to do this you know open the show and be warren zevon's band and i was a huge huge fan and the other guys kind of knew the music, but not really. And I said, yeah, we want to do it. <laughs> so they said, okay, when you're finished this tour, you get to Los Angeles, go home and Warren will meet you there. So Warren meet, met us in the basement of the Roxy, the place I described earlier and with his tour manager, Stuart. And we spent two or three days, maybe two, two days rehearsing. And then we went on the road. What did you learn from a, a legend like that, a guy who's been around for decades at that point? That's a whole other interview. I mean, it's I, he was a great mentor, and we talked about it early on. We became good friends, and we talked early on about me. I said, I'm going to be bugging you. You know, that's this is the way it is. I'm going <laughs> to bug you all the time. And I think he was ready for that at the time. He was a, a really uh, – generous curmudgeon you know he was uh cantankerous at times and uh impatient but at, at other times especially with music and books and art and talking about things like that he had all the time in the world so it was uh it was great he would always he would always take me aside and Craigy Weggs, have you seen this movie before you know you'd be watching some movie i go yeah and he'd go well, then you should be writing, and he'd walk away. So he he had uh, he had all kinds of nuggets. So I I think uh, that was a big loss, and at the same time, it was great for us. We'd never been on a tour bus. We'd been in a stinky van, you know, twenty four seven away from our families for months at a time, and all of a sudden we were in a tour bus with a guy who actually drew people to his shows, which was. Uh, <laughs> Was, which was great for our band and also great to just have that feedback with an audience. Yeah, you had that experience as well of playing it opening for yourselves in kind of a way you'd opened up and then you put your Warren's bands. You hadn't played on that from your cover band days, I guess. That's kind of interesting. In our lives, we've done triple bills with ourselves. <laughs> Explain that. What is that? Is that real? Yeah, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. That's why I was laughing. That's awesome. One time we... We uh, got double. We we did a double bill with ourselves in um, Dawson City, Yukon, wow. before we had a record out or anything like. We did two cassette albums before Neapolitan, our first label release, came out. So we around we would sell them off the stage, and uh, we had those albums, and we got hired to play an arena in Dawson City as Dawn Patrol and Odds, and um, for two nights. Wow. We thought, well, we can't afford to bring more than one guitar each, 
um, you know, you're flying up there at that point on a DC-3 and all kinds of crazy stuff. So we, we came out with this idea. We created cardboard shrouds for our guitars that we <laughs> drew on. And we would take the strings off and put these cardboard shrouds over the front of our guitars for the odds and then uh, or vice versa. I can't remember. I think, yeah, we put them over and then we get off the stage. We change our clothes, take the wigs off, take the glasses off, take the cardboard off because we had to get through two nights of it. And uh, on the second night, it took one person finally came up after the show and he go, he points at us and he smiles and he goes, I know what you guys are up to. <laughs> By that point, it had been two nights of it. <laughs> so going into uh, Bedbugs, when you first heard the track, um, I think it's a Stephen song, Heterosexual Man, what was the kind of band's response to kind of the lyrics of that song and the kind of vibe of it? We liked the way it felt. We hated the tune. Hmm. And so me in particular, I'll just go on record as saying I didn't like it in that I didn't think, not that I didn't like it, I didn't think that a novelty song at that part of our, our careers was a good idea because I wanted to be, I wanted all the other stuff to be taken for what it was, which was just songs. So uh, if, if something was uh, stuck out like that, I didn't want it to be that way. And I thought that people wouldn't get that it was satirical. It was a song about our experiences, Stephen's song anyway, he ha he'd have to speak to that, but it was a song about watching these guys, their behavior late at night in a club. Every night we'd watch these guys do sort of awful things in the, in driven by testosterone and alcohol. So that was the idea. And we were poking fun at that being central to a, a guy's character is this flaw hmm. and and uh i didn't think it was gonna happen and a good a good tidbit that you can you can look for on our bedbugs record if you have the cd or a physical copy there's a picture of us in a room in new york in a this painted hotel room it's kind of trippy hotel room in a photo session on the back of it and at that point i had just said to everybody if that song's the first song that comes out, I think I'm going to have to leave the band. Oh, wow. And so we got this super serious picture out of that, out of it for about, you know, she was clicking away like crazy. Dana Tyne and the photographer thinking, finally, I got them to stop laughing and jerking around. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's what that was.
how did the kids in the hall end up in the video? And how did you guys, because uh, you guys had, or you, I guess, personally had a long relationship with with uh, multiple members of, of the troupe. How did that all develop? Well, just around at exactly that time, the kids in the hall were on their first tour uh, where they were touring some material live. And they came to the Vogue Theater on Granville, which is now open. Since since we since the Roxy thing happened, a whole development of the Granville Strip had started to happen economically as people started to come there. For it wasn't really an entertainment sector that was uh, uh, friendly to people. It's seen seen as kind of a darker place, and now it's it's a corridor of entertainment. And it's all revitalized. But at that point, uh, the Vogue Theater had been opened, which was lying dormant for years, and uh, the kids were playing there. And the Roxy, the club that we had our clubhouse in down below in the bowels of the club, was right next door. And the people that worked at both places were the same people because they were using the money from the Roxy to start redeveloping other parts of the Granville Strip. And uh, so – we sort of had club courtesy at all these places. Hmm. And um, our tour manager was on night one. We couldn't get any tickets to the show. Uh, and so our tour manager was there, and they played our album as the walk-in music. So he went up to the the, the sound guy, front of house guy, Al Miller, and said, uh, who decides on who puts this music on? And he said, oh, the kids do. They They love this band. Huh. And so he said, oh, well, I work for them. <laughs> and Al said, well, you should bring them down tomorrow. So that's how we met. And we uh, we were we were big fans of theirs. And um, when we met, we really found a, a lot of common ground. We hung out late into the night. And so we had already started talking about collaboration type ideas, musical and comedy ideas and when this problem came up with heterosexual men, I said, I think I might have a solution that people might understand uh, that it's satirical if we get the right people involved. And so I did a Hail Mary and I phoned those guys and said, would you guys like to do this video with us? And they just said, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, a few weeks later, we were out there. It was sort of half written and we had a, you know, great filmmaker, Adam Slowinski, and we just made those guys put it together with us they they wrote it and um we were wearing their fake breasts and <laughs> their, their costumes and we did it with you and steven both kind of sharing vocal duties did the record label have any kind of issue marketing you guys or did they have any pushbacks i know i've heard that with sloan before is that you know they didn't know who to market because there's not one lead singer did you guys feel any kind of um, pushback from the label regarding both of you guys handing vocal duties I don't know if it was so much that. I think it was that they didn't know what our image was. There was this word image. Mm. They didn't have any idea how to do that. Could they dress us up like Devo? What the, they try different things. Let's dress them up differently. Let's. Uh, it, it, we were just a band who loved making music, who found common ground musically, and were having fun and. Uh, I think that was tough for a label to market. You know, there was not a black. We didn't all wear black. We didn't, you know, we, we tried all those things. And in the end, we realized it's just the music that's going to sell it. And it was less about it being two lead vocalists watering it down. But I'm sure that they were they were at points trying to pick somebody that, 
was photogenic or pick somebody with the charisma. <laughs> but um, they, they uh, I, I think in, in essence, they gave up and they just let it be the music after a while. Speaking of the music, with a song like, in a video like Heterosexual Man, which got a lot of airplay on things like Much Music, did you start to find more of a footing in Canada kind of nationally as opposed yes. to America? Yeah, I think that's when it happened in Canada was when Much Music got behind it and when when our friends and other bands were so supportive of us, like um, Tragically Hip and Bare Naked Ladies, who really championed us and took us on tours and then we became a Canadian thing at that point because those were the those were the Canadian guys. And uh, did you still try to tour outside of Canada? Did you do uh, Europe and the States as well on that record, or did you just stick to? Yeah, we did. We always did the States, and uh, we had our other friends and other bands there that were doing the same thing. The Gin Blossoms being one, Toad the Wet Sprocket, you know, people we were on the road with a lot. And then in Europe, we did a little bit, not a ton, but we did. Speaking of uh, Gin Blossoms, that's a relationship you've developed with, uh, was it Jesse Valenzuela, the guitar player? Yes. Yes. How did you guys first hook up with the Gin Blossoms? Was that just kind of two labels putting bands together and you guys got along? Or did they pick you guys? Or how did that kind of develop? Uh, you'd have to wind back to the time before we had a, a were signed to a label. Oh, wow. Cool. used to happen. We... We, when we were going to Los Angeles, we were sleeping on a friend's floor. Uh, he worked at ASCAP, which is the royalty, the performance rights royalty organization in Canada. We have SOCAN and in, in um, America, we have, they have ASCAP and BMI. And ASCAP would put on showcases of bands. And we went in, we had met somebody from ASCAP in Vancouver who had come to see us. And she said, oh, you should come by the office when you're in L.A. And that's what was, what happened to us is we met these people who would see us. We had an A&R guy from from A&M Records come up to Vancouver to see our band. We had a few people come that started to sniff around who had heard about us. And um, through some old Hollywood connections of Stephen Drake's and because he's from California originally and and. Um, they basically said, hey, when, if you're ever in L.A., come visit us. And we were naive enough to just go, OK, let's go. Let's let's get it. Let's get a bag of cassette tapes and go visit all these people. And that that's how it kind of started. And on that first trip, we met a guy named Tom DeSavia who worked at ASCAP. And he said, I love you guys. Why don't you come over to my place tonight? And on that on that trip to his house, we met our manager who was our manager for 14 years Wow. The, the guy who would sign us to Zoo Records was there. You know, he he knew all these people and uh, he knew who would like us. So we would stay on his floor. He also met the Gin Blossoms at that time and they were doing ASCAP showcases in L.A. And we would be on these showcases with them and we love those guys. And so we ended up a few a couple of times all sleeping on his apartment floor, both, <laughs> both bands and we just remained friends ever since. They they would take our stuff to the college radio station in Tempe, Arizona, and and we'd take their stuff to CITR at UBC, and you know back in the very organic days to try to get the word out about them. That's interesting that you guys had that friendship early, early on, and both have become hugely successful bands. I mean, Jim Blossoms and yourself both made waves. Well, they were 
they were actual huge. <laughs> so, so, you know, they were millions of records and that, and that just blew our minds because we were just all nutcase fuck ups at the time. <laughs> so, uh, after the kind of success of something like heterosexual man and some more heavy touring, is there any kind of pressure or going into like a, like a third record? Like Good Weird Feeling, which is my favorite album of yours. How did that writing process between ending the run of Bedbugs and going into the recording and writing of Good Weird Feeling? I think we were pretty well equipped. I mean, I think the hardest one might have been Bedbugs in that it was, uh, well, I, I say that I don't think any record is easy to make. I, I think I think they're all difficult with the with a few exceptions where it just feels like music therapy. <laughs> but uh most of them are hard to make and I think a sophomore effort like Bedbugs where okay it didn't it went okay with Neapolitan uh, critics like you but nobody bought it. So let's we we now got all this money in you so now there's Bedbugs and we're going to plow more money into you. And back then you kind of had the idea of artist development was ending. You kind of had, they were signing a million bands and then you had a couple shots at kicks at the can and that was it. It wasn't like in the seventies where you got six albums to kind of build your career slowly organically. So by the time we hit a uh, good weird feeling, we were really productive. We, we'd wrought, written a lot on the road. We learned a lot from Warren in that department. We pushed each other and, I think we had a lot of stuff and we had a bit of a layoff because we switched labels. We went and signed actually in Canada to Warner after we left Zoo. And that's where Kim Cook actually saw us was Regina. Hmm. Oh, cool. The the A&R guy who we still are great music guy. He came out to Regina to see us. And it may have been that New Year's Eve. I'm not sure. Channel One anyway. I knew it was Channel One. So we uh, we had switched labels. They were excited. We had Susan Rogers recording us again, who worked on Neapolitan. We had a good thing going. But there was all kinds of stuff from working together for so long. We'd already been together for um, eight years almost. You know, we started in 87, in the middle of 87. It's now 94 or 5, so six, seven years anyway. And... Uh, the, you know, Paul wasn't happy, our drummer, and so in the middle of a record, he left. Oh, <laughs> so that was kind of tough, yeah. So to answer the question, Good Weird Feeling had a tough spot in it. But then Pat just happened to be there, and Pat and uh, Stuart, and Pat and Doug had grown up starting to play together when they were 18 years old, and it was just, he just walked in, and it was it was great. So Paul was great. All that was great, but it was a tough record. So how like, much time did you have between the drummer leaving and then you have to find a replacement? Because you guys were right in the midst of looking at the liner notes and it's like one person on four or five tracks and the other, you know, was it a matter of days to find somebody or did you have? Uh, it was a matter of days. Oh, wow. It was, it was a, a few days later. I think we paused for a few days and then Pat came in. And I think Paul, Paul knew. He said, get Pat. <laughs> I mean, Pat had loaned Paul drums. Paul's drums, when we started in 87, had been burned in a fire in a in a hall gig and on the Gulf Islands where the hall burnt down. Huh. 
and his drums were still in there. So Pat had loaned him drums. And so when we started uh, the band, we were actually using Pat's drums anyway. So eventually <laughs> we, we got Pat too. You know, in 95, you know, the music scene in Canada is really starting to to come alive. I mean, it started in, you know, the start of the decade and now it's really, you know, with much music and things like Chart Magazine and all those things kind of coming together, like a real star system was being developed in Canada. Did you see a lot of bands, you mentioned earlier, like a lot of bands getting signed and did you see that happening? Like, you know, that you were spending more time in Canada, like a lot of bands coming up that would end up making ways in nationally? I guess. I don't think I thought about it much. Hmm. I, I didn't, I thought that that was regular, but then I also had, we were also had been around long enough that we remembered that when we were trying to get something going in Canada, it was very, a very imitative scene. Mm. So, so all the labels were too scared to kind of do something unique on its own. They were looking for things that sounded like what had happened six months earlier in England or in the United States. So if you didn't have that sound, if you weren't part of something, then you were, they said, well, we love, we love what you're doing, but we just don't know what to do with it. So we, that's how we ended up in Los Angeles, where finally someone in Los Angeles goes, Canadian? That sounds interesting. Because hmm. Katie Lang had already done that and some interesting people doing, like some talent people had sort of left. Uh, bare naked ladies, you know. So there were that there was kind of a undermining of the attitude in Canada finally. And I think I noticed that. But I, I'm not so sure I, I just was making we were just making friends and having fun. We we made so many great friends with other artists and it became such a small community of people who knew each other crossing the country because really there's not as many gigs. There's a big giant space and not as many gigs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you mentioned a, a switch kind of going off in Canada that allowed them, um, made them more interested in assigning, you know, domestic original material as opposed to aping another country, another scene. What do you think allowed for that switch? I guess the amount of money being made by physical copies of records being sold um, and maybe more confidence, the industry itself growing to a point where that could be possible CanCon rules making it inevitable that you just had to let something was going to come through. And when Canadian bands started influencing each other, then that's a scene, I guess, isn't it? What were some of the bands that influenced you guys? You guys said you made a lot of friends in the, during those years. Well, I've mentioned a couple of them. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Pursuit of Happiness, other pals on the road who were who broke a lot of ground, like sound-wise and attitude wise we were sort of post-punk in our attitude initially we were diy we were producing ourselves and taking our own photographs and doing everything ourselves in the early days and inventing that scheme with the dawn patrol and a lot of that came from us coming out of punk rock you know we're we're a little older than than most would admit but we uh the first wave of of punk is what we we really loved, you know, um, so our influences are actually earlier than that era. They're the, the pointed sticks in Vancouver, the modernettes, DOA, you know, and, and then we all loved bands from England like XTC and things like that. So as far as influences go, 
we we love obviously you can tell we like the Beatles, but uh, and if you don't like the Beatles, as Stephen Drake used to say, you're probably trying hard not to like the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> so we we come from that as kids. Those those are influences, and then of course we picked up so much learning and from watching other bands. I I don't know by osmosis. I'm sure we sound a lot like the band the other bands that were around us. Get up. 
Speaking of hearing, I can't take too much loud music. I mean, I like to play it, but I sure don't like to rack it. Noise, but I can't hear anything. Just guitars screaming, screaming, screaming. Some guy screaming in a leather jacket. Speaking of uh, other bands and, you know, on the touring of the touring cycle of Good Weird Feeling, the Tragically Hip, who you had mentioned earlier, uh, you guys had a relationship, brought you guys and change of heart on their first kind of full scale arena tour on the heels of Day for Night. Do yeah. you remember, um, did that mean a lot to you guys to get the call? We're always flattered. I think that our relationships with, say, Junk House, Junk House is a band that I'm just going to skip there because I, I realize <laughs> that. When a band phones you or finds you somehow and says, hey, we really like you, we, we heard your music, we'd like to do something with you, or can you come to our show, that means a lot. That's that's really cool. And Junk House, I remember Tom just finding our phone number in the – we had a phone number because we, we called ourselves the Odd Entertainment Corporation in the Yellow Pages, <laughs> nice. and we'd get calls to do kids' birthday parties as clowns and stuff. Of course, we never did it, but we'd always <laughs> – They'd always ask how much that would cost, and we'd say, well, it's $15,000, <laughs> and then we'd pause and wait, and they'd say, okay, thank you, and they'd hang up. And uh, Tom found that number and invited us down, and the hip did the same thing. They just called us and said, we're playing in Seattle. That's pretty close to you. Would you guys like to come and hang out? Huh. And we, we said, yeah. Uh, we'd run into each other a little bit over the years before, and so we drove down to Seattle and, and uh, believe it was the Moore Theater and hung out with them and watched the show and talked about music. And and then about a month later, I think we played our first gig with them. And so, yes, and Bare Naked Ladies the same. They they were in Vancouver a couple of times. They met Stephen at the on stage. Uh, he went over and said hi to them uh, at their sound check and uh then the next time they were recording Maybe You Should Drive in, in Vancouver, they came into the Roxy when we were doing our shtick, and uh, we all, they were immediately on stage. And, <laughs> and then immediately, from then after, almost every night on stage. So it was just, it's nice when your music draws people to you and theirs draws you to them. And that that's how, that's was the hip. That was a really well-timed tour because we were feeling it just come out and that really pushed us over the top where people got to see us in large numbers who might not have seen us live. And I think that was maybe our strong suit. As we talked earlier, we didn't have a great image. We didn't come across very interesting in most other formats, but seeing us live was the best way to cut through the crap. And just to uh, close on the tragical hip, like 
Do you have any kind of public stories you can share about interactions with Gord Downey? He's still, you know, he means a lot to a lot of people. And any kind of nugget or anecdote you have about your time with him would, I think, people would really like to hear. That's always a tough one. Yeah, he was, he was my friend. So I, he was a very thoughtful guy. And uh, he, uh, um, let's circle back to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, no that's, yeah. that's fine. Totally. He's, he, he's a, he was a, as complex as any person, but, um, really, as everybody knows, quite a soulful guy. And he was funny as hell and didn't suffer fools. So there's, <laughs> so there's a lot of funny stuff for sure. We had, uh, okay. I thought of one. Cool. I'll, I'll just do a funny one. Um, one time, uh, Doug and I were going over to Gord's house to go play shinny across the street from his house because where he was living <laughs> at the time, there was an outdoor rink in Toronto. And uh, he had moved to Toronto years before that. And uh, so we went over to his place. His kids were young. And we didn't have sticks, but we brought our skates and gloves. Nice. And, and uh, Gord said, Gord's a goalie. So he was putting on his goalie gear. <laughs> Which was all Byron Defoe's gear from no the Boston, Boston Bruins. That's awesome. Because uh, his godfather was Harry Sinden. Uh, and for all you guys, just keep Googling stuff I say if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and he said, I got a bunch of sticks. They're behind the dryer in the laundry room. So I went in the laundry room and there was a bunch of sticks taped up. And they were all signed sticks, like signed by <laughs> hockey players. And Doug and I both shoot right, and there were only two right-handed sticks in the in the batch of sticks. One was um, Timu Sulani's with his rookie number, which oh, I no. believe was I believe was 14, on on the stick signed by Timu Sulani. So it would have been signed in Winnipeg in the season that he scored a million goals. And then <laughs> uh, the other stick was a Boston Bruins complete team signed stick with to Gord from Ray Bork on the blade of the stick. No way. And so we were standing there with the sticks and we say, Gord, you sure you want us to use these sticks? <laughs> he goes, yeah. And I said, well, don't you want to put one of the kids through college with these sticks later? <laughs> and he, and he said, are we fucking playing hockey or what? <laughs> and, and so we went across the street and, uh, he walks across the street, of course, on his skates with, no skate guards on, oh, no which, way. which is awesome. And uh, and goes to the net, taps the post. He's ready to go. We throw all, we throw all the sticks in the middle with all these kids and you know the regular shinny crowd. And somebody starts tossing them from one side to the other. If you're not Canadian and you're listening, that's the way you select the teams for the the uh, upcoming game. So. As the stick is thrown, you can see these kids' eyes follow that stick. They see an autograph on it. So Doug and I are skating around, just warming up, and you got this crowd of kids. And the kid goes, who signed that? And I said, uh, Timo Solani. And the other kid goes, well, it's not number eight. I said, yeah, it's his rookie year. He skated away. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, then they're following Doug around, and Doug said, you know, they, they were asking him, and he said, yeah, hey, this is the Boston Bruins. 
And the kids were incredulous that we were using the sticks. And I, I think it gave us a lot of room during the game because they just couldn't believe that we were, <laughs> they didn't want to hack the sticks or <laughs> anything like that, just in case we gave them to them or something. And I always thought afterwards, because Gord walked across the street with his mask on. Amazing. I thought, you know, what if I told them who was in net? <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Hopefully somebody was in that game is listening to this story being told and it all comes back to him now. That, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. There you go. The only reason I remember, I shared it recently with somebody and now I, and so I was, and that was a pretty put together story, huh? It, it was impressive. You were saying you don't remember much in back in the day, man. You're just dropping names, dropping stories, man. You're coming, yeah, you're coming you strong. Go. That's right. Give yourself more credit, sir. You, you're right on top of things. So slick. <laughs> so um you mentioned you know now you're touring with a hip you got good weird feeling you got has a bunch of videos out did you guys kind of notice a change in you know touring uh, support uh, income um just kind of did you kind of feel for the first time like you were a successful working musician was there any kind of difference or did it all kind of still feel the same as it was at 91 I know it felt different. It was it was good. We were able to, especially in Canada, to go out and play gigs and get paid for them and stuff like that, uh, which is different. You know, we weren't always losing money. Uh, a lot of times in the early days in in the states and so forth, you're on tour support, as they call it, which is kind of a loan against your future earnings or partial earnings anyway. Um, it was, you know, still as much work as ever. We just kept plowing, and I think we just were concerned that we make good music. And, yes, you, you did notice it. We were all having kids and in slightly better situations than we were before. Now, there's a story behind the song, Someone Who's Cool, about you being asked to write a song for the sequel to the Friend soundtrack. Can you maybe run through that story? I mean, I've told you, I'm sure you've told it many times, but... I would like to take to hear it from you if you could. We wrote the song for exactly what you said. This, we were asked to write a song for the next album for Friends. The first one had been a big success with Hootie and the Blowfish and all these people. And um, so none of us really knew the show that well, which was funny. And so uh, I wrote the tune and took it to the band and the band put their regular spin on it and we recorded it and uh figured it was about you know the same kind of discomfort with yourself which you kind of get when you watch the show and uh <laughs> when we delivered it we sent it to electra records which was our label in the states and they said no you can't give this to them and it had been delivered simultaneously to everyone, to the other label, which was doing, which was Warner Brothers, was doing the Friends thing and to our own label. And the president of the label said, no, that's your single. You can't you can't give away that single. You guys got to keep this song and then get in the studio and make a record. And that's going to be the single. <laughs> and and so she took it away from them. <laughs> and, uh, so I don't think that record actually happened. And um, when we actually did Nest, we on on that record, and I think maybe the record before, Good Weird Feeling, we said that they were produced by Nigel the Cat. <laughs> that was my cat. <laughs> right so on. we said, because we produced albums ourselves, 
we never got any respect. <laughs> people thought, well, it can't be as good. They don't have a big producer on there with a big name. Right. So we we just thought that sounded like some kind of English guy, Nigel the Cat. So we, we said we produced our albums by Nigel the Cat. <laughs> and at the same time, we were the Susan Lucci's of awards. We'd been nominated for a bunch of Junos and all kinds of different things and never won any of them. So uh, there was a an award show in uh, Vancouver called, I guess it's the, the West Coast Music Awards. I can't remember what it was called at the time. And Nigel the Cat was nominated for Producer of the Year. No way. For a nest. That's amazing. And, uh, Nigel the Cat. And I was the one who went to the thing. I was the only person who went to the ceremony. And uh, <clears throat> my cat won the award. No way. <clears throat> so I went down to receive it. But the person who was... They had got the luminary to give out the award was the head of the label that uh, Warner Brothers, Howie Klein, that had been de denied someone who's cool for their oh. sound album. <laughs> oh, no way. And so I, he's, he made some comment about, uh, a wry comment about, um, I don't know if I really want to give this award to this person. <laughs> <laughs> When we got up, I said, well, it's, you really didn't give it to me. This is for my cat, Nigel, and sorry for wrecking your album. <laughs>
Someone Who's Cool is one of the most memorable videos for me in the 90s, but it looked really difficult for you to make. <laughs> Can you uh, talk us through um, the shooting of that video? Or is there, is there camera effects? Or is that you in each one of those outfits? Yeah, it, uh, it is me in each one of those outfits and each one of those sets. It was an idea by Curtis Warefritz, who was a popular uh, – he's a great director. He – it's an actual old, it's all old film school in camera techniques. There's oh, no, wow. it's pre-CGI, anything like that. So when you see the walls change and the bedding change and those kind of things, it's actually stop, move it all, put in new walls, take a, take a three second shot, put in new walls, you know, it, all those kind of things. And a lot of those, all those people changing in place and um, uh, animation was done stop motion and all the clothes changing. I was on a, a spine, a spine lock board behind me, like a metal um, thing that locked my head in place and my body in place. Oh, wow. That's crazy. How long did it take to shoot the video? I think two days. That's it. Wow. I yeah. thought I would talk more with all that stop motion. Crazy. Yeah. Now that was um, up to that point your heart, your highest uh, charting single, at least in Canada. Um, but yet that was your last record as the odds for for quite some time. Why did you guys kind of decide to stop around '99? I think you just kind of know. I think that's the uh, the ten years or whatever. You just kind of know that uh, it's too hard. There's some working relationship issues and and the creativity. Like I said earlier, we just were a band who wanted to make cool music that we all agreed on and all liked and was all at a place where we came together. And I think you just kind of knew we need a we need a break from this. And so I kind of pulled the pin. So I'll take responsibility for that. And uh, I just knew it was just getting too hard. Like were you guys under contract for a certain number of albums? What was the response from the label after coming off like a you know huge song and then all of a sudden you said I'm out? Did they have any kind of pushback against that? Or? They were really, you know, we were going off. The great thing about it is we went away on a high note and we mm -hmm. they, they really wanted uh, the next record and um, it just wasn't happening. You know, it just the the organism wasn't working mm. the way the way it should sparing all the details and so um i said well i i'm still being productive on my own here's uh here's a, a whack of songs and if you want to go that way until an odds record is ready then how about i do that just like you know kiss you know put out <laughs> putting out the solo records right and and they kind of hemmed and hawed about that because there was no brand on it it was just a guy's name from odds and they'd had enough enough hassle just building building a building an impression of who we were so, <laughs> so um our manager who was also taking care of me got me out of that and and i went and did that on my uh, some something small on my own and we never actually did make an odds record after that for for a while after that Doug and Pat and I did a lot of work together on Colin James on other people's records mm -hmm. and um, and uh, Kids in the Hall. I I kept working with them in different ways, making albums or films or touring. And um, I did a little EP called Giddy Up, and the Doug and Pat played on that. 
So in about 2000, 2000, somewhere in there, um, they were doing a, another house gig like we used to do with, uh, with another guitar player called Murray Atkinson. And, uh, I went down and saw it one night and it was incredible. They were, they were incredible. It was like a four piece. There was another guitar player too, but I had so much fun, drank a lot of beer. <laughs> and, then, and then, uh, we started later. Doug and Pat came to me and said, you know, we should, we should be writing more music again. I think it's time that the three of us got together and started doing things. And our friends, Spirit of the West, who I haven't mentioned to this point, but were friends of ours since before they were Spirit of the West. Oh, wow. And, uh, since eavesdropper anyway, since they were called that, they, they said, Hey, you guys are writing. Why don't you come as a trio and play opening for us at the Commodore? They, so we did and it was really fun. And, uh, so it was just the three of us. Then Naked ladies heard about it <laughs> and they said, we hear you guys are writing together again, doing something. And, uh, do you want to come on this cruise that we're going to do called, uh, ships and dip and it was a basically a floating music festival of all their friends hmm. in the caribbean and uh we said yeah yeah we'll go <laughs> we, thought, we thought as this trio we had no name yet and uh we thought okay well we'll do some of the old material too and um we were playing together and we thought well, it would be great to have this other some of these other guitar parts why don't we get Murray to come on this cruise with us from from your side gig? And they said, this is Doug's quote. Maybe it might have been Pat's quote. No way, Craig. As soon as Murray comes, the first time you guys get drunk together, he's in the band. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, sure enough, sure enough, that happened. So we had called ourselves like the Spinal Tap idea, the new odds. We thought that we thought that was funny because it was like the new originals <laughs> and no one else got the joke. Unfortunately, it wasn't. We, so we put out uh, a full album with Murray in the band as the new odds. Kim Cook from uh, our old guy from Warner had started a new label in Toronto called Pheromone. And uh, we put this album out with Murray in the band as the new odds. And then we realized, nah, nobody gets it. Let's just be odds we made a full album called cheerleader and uh so then we did three eps which was really a double album we decided to do a double album and our manager new manager um mike renault said nobody does that anymore <laughs> <laughs> so we did that we we released them in in pieces
might be i'm not sure of the story behind it so i'm not sure if this is a touchy area or not but um why not the return of steven drake when you guys started getting back together again i think that is he's a wonderful guy he's a super talented guy and, and there's nothing that we could have done without him and all all the other things we were doing but i think it's where you're at as a person is what makes music and the three of us were really tight by that point and saw things <clears throat> saw things the same way so i don't know if steven would have um and so we just went with the flow we went where the door opened and that was murray so there's that's the only way i can really explain it and have he has he are you guys still a relationship do you guys still talk or hang or see each other at gigs or anything like that or not really and it's just surprising because i don't go out of my way to avoid it but it, it, not really. No, sometimes sometimes that happens. It's kind of like <clears throat> someone saying, it's funny with bands. Oh, you guys should get back together. You you guys should do that. And nobody ever goes up to uh, somebody who's had a, a divorce with the, somebody they've been in a relationship with and says, you know what? I This new wife, I'm not sure I dig her. I think <laughs> that you really, I really liked hanging out with you guys better when you were a couple. So you should get back together. Nobody does that. That's so, right. That's a great but, analogy. But unfortunately in bands, they do that. Because the audience, the audience in the end, they do decide what the songs mean. And right. sometimes, sometimes it feels like they're, they're trying to decide what you should do with your life too. Now, since he was a heavy part of the songwriting as well, is there any kind of hesitation playing his material? Like to me, some of the singles and stuff like that during your recent gigs? Uh, no, it's a combination of those ideas. I mean, we were so involved with each other's songs that you right. really feel like you're a part of those songs, no matter whether the genesis of those songs came from one person in, in particular. And we all we all share in the writing credit on those songs, mm -hmm. whether whether they were, in fact, brought by somebody to the table. You you deal with the uh, birthing of that song and then you go out on the road and do it for decades. So you kind of feel like you you should play them. And I think it helps the other person out anyway. They're getting 
performance royalties or whatever it is, and it, the song stays alive. Right, right, right. So we we perform a few of them, but not very many that Stephen sang. There there was a lot of material, so. Yeah, for sure. But we are we are as proud of those songs as any songs. And uh, another kind of side project you have going on is uh, you mentioned Pursuit of Happiness earlier, and of course, Many Naked Ladies many times, is the the Trans Canada Highwaymen. That is like the definition of a Canadian supergroup. I know people hate that term, but when you got Chris Murphy, yourself, Mo Berg, and Stephen Page in a band together, that is a, that's a supergroup. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Can you talk about how you guys decided to just start playing together and kind of how do you choose each other's songs to play during the gigs and, uh, you know, any kind of stories behind that or insight would be great. Well, we're just pals <laughs> and uh, we, we prefer superb group. Superb group. Ah, that's even better. There yeah, you go. There I, like go. That. I like that. Uh, we just play requests of each other, basically. <laughs> as, 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 uh, as Chris says, only the, ba- only the bangers. So we, <laughs> We have all picked each other's songs and curated the set. And so we play songs that everybody knows. And we have fun swapping instruments and trying to, to play, uh, trying not to wreck Chris's songs because none of us are actually as good to drummer as Chris is. So uh, that's, the key. that's the key. That's Most of the work is put into not destroying Chris's songs. <laughs> You have your priorities straight. That's good. You have the focus is nice yeah. and sharp. Now you, yeah. you you know you mentioned you guys you know you're picking all the hits from each other. Um, just uh, you know as a side note, is there a deep cut from each of their bands that you really love? You'd really love to play, or you'd really love to uh, to play with them? Oh my gosh! Well, yes, there are tons. I'd love to play "Fading into Obscurity" by Sloan. Hmm. Um, pressing lips by by pursuit we've already got to play nice. uh, we did it once and I, I get to play tons of cool obscure and not obscure bnl stuff with steven to this day because i collaborate with him heavily so i'm in a am in the steven page trio with steven and, awesome. and kevin Fo- kevin fox so and the odds have played on his last two albums and uh we get to play with him too, which is a, such a gas and privilege. We uh, tour around sometimes as, as we open the show or we mash the show up completely, and uh, we have a ton of fun. I know uh, Ryan Reynolds is a big fan of Stevens. Have you ever crossed paths with him during the gigs? Once we did, yeah, in New York. He and, and Blake Lively, his, his gal, came to the show, and it was fun to hang out with them. They're funny and and genuine people. Good Canadian boy, that's for sure. Yeah, he sure is. So what are the what's the status? I mean, after all this stuff the world's going through right now, what's the kind of status of odds and, you know, touring and recording? Is there kind of plans for the future? It's a good time for odd stuff because we have an album, well, another double album kind of almost done and uh now I'm just picking away at it because I, I hold the keys currently. I have access to it in my isolation. So <laughs> um, I do a lot of sort of film and TV stuff still. And when in between those things, which are still operating, I can get to work on the odds record. That's fun. And uh, same with Strippers Union. I've got we Rob Baker and I put out a couple of records 
he he's a he was in the is in tragically hip and uh we put out a couple albums and the third album is done except for me holding it up so i've just got some vocals to do and to send files etc oh amazing so lots of lots of cool stuff to come yeah. um so we'll get you out on this question um i have a playlist on apple and spotify of 90s canadian rock um can you give me two odd singles from the 90s and one deep cut that you'd like to have on the playlist and how would you like odds to be represented well, I will take I'm going to go with Truth Untold from Good Weird Feeling. Nice. Because because that's the first one where Pat walked into the room, sat down at the drums and I think it was the first take. Oh wow. So, that was during the record when we we Paul had left and Pat came in. And I uh, I think it's one of Steven's best tunes. It's great, yeah. I agree, yeah. And then I will pick Jackhammer from Bedbugs because that has Warren Zevon on it and Robert Quine on it. And if people don't know Robert, he was uh, in the uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and in Matthew Sweet's band and played with Lou Reed. He was a groundbreaking guitar player. And uh, so they're on that record. And it's uh, I, I think it's a weird single to put out. So how about that? <laughs> and then the deep cut, I'm going to go with... Uh, Outcome Stars on Nest, which is a tune that we all love that frequently the songs the band likes aren't singles, but uh, it, it's evocative of a environment and a place, and we like it. Excellent choices, sir. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been fantastic. Okay, good. Good luck editing. <laughs> thank you, sir. Take care. Okay. See you, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search ravedrool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.